Okay, a little bit of introduction. I told you I was going to let you know what's going to go on, okay? Ready? This is it. First of all, I'm going to let you know something that you're probably going to be very happy about if you've looked at the bulletin. You're not going to have to stand at every passage of scripture we read today. Uh, simply, I, you know, I'm not going to make you stand the whole time that I will be standing, but uh, just keep your ears open for that. Well, along the way, though, we are going to take a broad look at what happened, not just on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, but all of the things that were leading up to those moments. And you're going to help me with that. We're going to be looking at several different passages of Scripture. And during the course of the, the message, when it's time for you to take your part, I will ask you to stand, and you will at that point sing a song reflective of the passage we've just heard. So again, I hope this will be proved meaningful to you and important to you. So right off the bat, let me, Tim Keller preached a sermon entitled The Joy of Knowing Jesus. And he opened it up with this question, do you know what the word gospel means? And then he told his congregation the Greek word translated gospel, euangelion. And that first little sound, the U, is a preposition in the Greek language. And it means good or joyful. So gospel literally means good news, a good message, a message of joy. And they pointed out, when Jesus was born, what did the angel say? Behold, I bring glad tidings of great joy. The gospel is good. The gospel is about joy. And then he brought up one of my favorite authors, J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. But he talked about an essay that I've never had the pleasure of reading completely. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote an essay on fairy stories. And he said there's a kind of story that grips us. It's a kind of story that brings us joy, whether it's told through a movie or we're reading or a story we're hearing or even one performed on a stage, uh, or maybe even a story we sung about, but when we hear the story, our hearts are just filled up with joy. And he said, he described these beautiful stories this way, he said they have a certain kind of kernel to them. There is always some incredibly hopeless situation. And victory then is snatched out of the jaws of defeat. How? A Superman comes flying in. No, no, that's not that kind of story. <laughs> always, Tolkien says, it comes through someone in who weakness turns out to be strength. Someone who's been defeated. And out of that, defeat rises up to victory. He says, those are the kind of stories that bring us true joy. And he, he invented a word for them. You may be familiar with the word catastrophe. COVID-19 has been a catastrophe. Uh, world situations around us are catastrophes. But he invented a brand new word by taking that little preposition and combining it. He said, these are 
you catastrophes. These stories, there's a catastrophe that ultimately brings joy. A joyful catastrophe. Now that just sounds completely weird to our ears. But it is a, a story where tragedy becomes triumph, sacrifice brings joy, weakness follows up with strength, defeat brings victory. But then in the essay, Tolkien said something very interesting. He said there is a catastrophe of all catastrophes, And there is a story of joy that outshadows every other story of joy. He said there is a, a bass string to the human heart. And it can be strummed a little bit. Uh, and cause a little reverberation. But all the stories in the world don't quite pluck at our heartstrings. But he said there is one catastrophe that does. The only story that takes the human heart and makes it reverberate and come alive and can become true that never ceases that possibility of joy. And he said that story is the gospel. The gospel is the only story that will pluck the string of the heart so that it never stops reverberating. Well, today, we're going to look at the eucatastrophe of eucatastrophes, the very heart of the gospel. This morning, we are going to look at the story of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. But before we get to the joyful part, before we get to the the that want to sing and shout hallelujah, amen, we're going to take a look at the catastrophes Jesus faced. This morning, we're going to move from shadows to light. The week that we're going to be looking at had long been coming. Jesus had been telling his disciples for quite some time now his reason for coming, and his reason for coming was to die, to pay a ransom, to redeem. And they just didn't want to hear it. He's trying to be getting them ready. But then, when they finally get to Jerusalem, and the triumphant entry with everybody shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, it seemed like victory was theirs, And it was all going to happen the way they wanted it to be. But it did. And the first shadow that we're going to look at today is that Jesus faced the shadow of betrayal. The passage of scripture is a difficult one. And while the disciples were not wanting to hear what was said, in the verses we're going to look at today, it's been suggested There may have been two people out of his group of followers who actually understood he's about to die. So let's take a look. And I ask you to open up your ears and your hearts to hear the word of the Lord. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she had poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. 
Why the waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In John's gospel, the woman is identified. She is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. She is the one we're told, while Martha was busy in the kitchen, she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And apparently she was listening. Because she does for him something incredible. She takes a bottle. Now, alabaster itself was not a cheap substance. But it is filled with a perfume. And just in case you're wondering, the, the text tells us it was myrrh. Remember? That gift. And she broke it and... Matthew tells us she poured it on his head. John points out that his feet are anointed. So I want you to get the picture. As he's reclining at the table, she breaks open the bottle and pours it on his head and simply seems to drench him with this perfume from head to toe. He is covered. And Jesus tells us what her motivation was. Matthew doesn't. John doesn't. Jesus said she's done this to prepare me for my burial. She was listening. She was hearing. And she wanted to show love and honor to the one she called Master. Now, let's take a look at the others. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. I want you to understand. Matthew says all of the disciples were upset with perfume. They said it was a waste. John points out that it was Judas who made the largest uproar and says he did so because he wanted to steal the treasury. He was a thief. Mary seems to know that Christ is about to give his life. And she pours out perhaps the most expensive thing she's ever had over him in love. Judas seems to know that it's his time to die, but for a very different reason. I guess verse 16 tells us, from that, from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. We have an example of love. But we also have an example of betrayal of one called friend, a 
betrayal of one who said, I will follow you. Betrayal that struck at the very heart of what was going on. As we think of our Lord and Savior today, what will we offer him? Honor or betrayal? Mary understood Jesus was dying, but she didn't really understand why. Judas planned for him to be taken and didn't understand that God was moving. Even in that act of betrayal, God was moving. But Jesus faced another shadow. The shadow of desertion and denial. And I believe that it was with great pain Jesus shared these words. The night of his arrest, with a broken heart, this is what he had to say to his disciples. And Jesus told them this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep and the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you unto Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. We're not going to let that happen. We won't leave you behind. We won't desert you. We won't deny you. All of them, the same promise. But we know differently, don't we? Peter, always making brash promises, made his most bold statement. I will never deny you. But in a few hours, Jesus was arrested, brought to the home of Caiaphas, the chief priest, We're told the story in Luke 22, but you know it well. Peter is followed with the crowd and is kind of mingled in, curious about what's going to happen, not wanting to completely just run away. But in the course of the waiting, someone said, you're one of his men, aren't you? He says, no, I'm not. One. A little bit later, Someone says, I do know, you are one of his followers. Peter responded, man, I am not. I don't know what you're talking about. And finally, at one point, someone in the crowd said, but he's a Galilean. He has to be one of his. The scriptures say that Judas 
betrayal, as horrible as it was, may not be not quite as shocking as Peter's final curse. I never knew him, spoken like one who never did. In Luke's gospel, we're told told right at that moment, the rooster began to crow. And in a detail only Luke captured, and Luke was a master of detail, he said, as the rooster crowed, apparently Jesus was being led from one room to another, because right at that moment, he looked down and saw Peter. And I believe their eyes locked. As Jesus was led away, Peter went out into the world, crying bitterly. It's easier for us to be harsh on Peter, but I've got to ask. Have there ever been times, maybe will there be again, that we have turned from our allegiance to the Lord? We've promised I'll follow you. We've promised I'll live for you. We've promised I'll share your word. And when the moment comes, we pull back. I can't imagine what Jesus must have felt when these men who had walked with him, talked with him, essentially lived with him during his journeys, at his side constantly for about three years, ran out into the night. Peter may have spoken the words, but understand, for at least a brief moment, all of the disciples denied him. But before the arrest, before his words to his disciples were fulfilled, Jesus faced another shadow. He faced the shadow of a lonely vigil. Again, a painful experience found in Mark 14, 32 through 41. What we know happened is this. After what we call the Lord's Supper now, after that meal was eaten, they went out into the night. They went to the Mount of Olives, a place Jesus would have known very well in his vigils that he spent with his Lord. And Jesus takes three of the disciples deeper into the garden, and it's a time for prayer. So let's see what happens. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? 
Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. At a moment in time, Jesus asked his disciples, Watch and pray. I believe he wasn't just saying pray for yourselves. I believe he was saying pray for me. At a moment in time, he needed the fellowship of people who would seek the Father. But he was alone. Alone. Peter, James, and John, were they depressed? Was that it? Were they just overwhelmed from the night that they couldn't stay awake? But at that moment when Jesus needed his brothers. They slept. And he pledged himself to the task at hand. What I want is an important I will do what you call me to do. Jesus faced the shadow of ungodly judgment. What he said came true. There in the garden, that last time when he said, the hours come, they came to arrest him. They led him away. And they led him away to what should have been justice. We expect when you're arrested, we believe justice will prevail. But that's not what happened. After betrayal by Judas and Jesus' arrest, he first goes to the Sanhedrin. And it was illegal for them to have a trial at night. That didn't stop. <coughs> Let's hear what happened. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was a custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. 
knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? That's Pilate. But, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Understand the Sanhedrin, taken up of religious leaders in, in Jerusalem, were given the task of judgment. These were all men pledged to the Lord, God Almighty. These were all men who were supposed to be looking out for the people of Israel, of Judah. But they had one verdict in mind long before Jesus got there. They listened to false testimony. They made their decision. And because they had no power to enact punishment severe enough, they then sent him to Pilate. The prefect, the governor of Judea, supposed to be a person bringing the honest judgment of Rome against criminals. And a lot of sympathy has been given to Pilate. You can hear he He's trying really hard, it sounds like, to let Jesus go, isn't it? Talk to me. Tell me what's going on. Let me hear your response to their accusations. He even clearly seems to know Jesus has committed no crime worthy of crucifixion. What crime has he committed? And folks have tried to say, well, he was pushed into a corner and could do nothing else. There was a lot more he could have done. Folks, please remember, at the end of that passage, Pilate knowingly takes an innocent man and turns him over to die the most brutal capital punishment ever invented by man. It was so horrid, this thing called the cross, a Roman citizen could not legally be put to death on it. Pilate sent an innocent man knowingly to his doom. There was no justice that night. Not at the hands of human beings. The story gets even tougher to hear. Because Jesus faced a shadow of cruel brutality. When I read this text, as Christians, as looking back on the subject, we are horrified by what these guards did. But I told you the crucifixion was one of the cruelest forms of capital punishment ever devised, invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans. Part of the task of crucifixion, we don't just kill a man, we humiliate him, we shame him, we drag him down to the lowest depth we can, and then we kill him. 
because this was supposed to be reserved for the worst of criminals. So let's hear what Jesus had to face. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crowd of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, then led him out to crucify him. These men probably did not know Jesus. They may have heard about him, but typically Roman soldiers did not have a whole lot of conflict, uh, contact with the Jewish residents they were supposed to protect. They didn't know him. They didn't care. But they were brutal. Throwing out his own title to humiliate. And so they joined the ranks of countless number of people through the ages who have used the excuse, I'm just doing my job. I'm just following orders. We're told in the book of Isaiah that he was beaten to such an extent he could hardly be recognized as a human. And that's what he faced. And then ultimately, Jesus faced <laughs> the shadow of crucifixion and mockery. Apparently, Jesus was beaten so severely he could not carry his own cross all the way. And in Matthew, we are told someone was enlisted. This is the only time we hear this man in Scripture, and I would love to know what would have been the results of what he was called to do. But hear the word of as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. They forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king 
of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Let him come down and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants it. For he said, I am the son of God. I won't go into minute detail about the barbarity and the cruelty and, and the actual pain Jesus would have went through at the cross. Just know that it would have been suffering beyond our comprehension. And as horrible as that was, as awful a death as he died, I can't help remembering what John wrote in the first chapter. He came to his own, and his own received him not. The people who were at the foot of the cross mocking him, laughing at him, humiliating him. As he hangs there dying, are the very people he came to die for. He came to die the mockers for the mockers and scorners, the sinners of this world. To give them hope, to give them a way to life, to give them salvation. This was the reason he was on that cross. Not because it was an accident of history, not because he got the wrong people angry, This was the reason Jesus came to this earth. The Son of Man has come to give his life a ransom for many. And the vast majority of the people at the cross were mocking him. There were a few there crying for him, loving him, broken by what they saw. How horribly cruel all of that pain was. Now, how much crueler was the hatred being spewed at his face. And ultimately, there on the cross, Jesus faced the shadow of the end. He faced the shadow of death itself. Psalm 22, 1 reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? And those opening verses are what Jesus cried out there on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Biblical scholars call that phrase the cry of dereliction, the cry of abandonment. This is the only place in all the scripture where Jesus is directly addressing the Father above and calls him God. Everywhere else, it's Father. And at that moment, and all of the brutality and all of the humiliation and all of the shame, Jesus on the cross has a sense of total abandonment. And he asks why. If you were to read all of Psalm 22, 
And I encourage you, make a mark. Do that this week. If you were to read all of Psalm 22, you find a man who feels completely and totally abandoned by God, crying out, why aren't you doing something about my situation? But as you read, this man comes to a conclusion, God will hear me. God is with me. And it ends triumphantly. This is the beginning with sheer abandonment. He ends in a statement of faith. I know that you are God and that you will, will, you will bring justice and righteousness in this world. On that cruel cross, Jesus knew. Even as he's cried out, why have you abandoned me? Jesus knew that the Father was not only receiving his act of sacrifice, Jesus knew the Father would also welcome his Son. How do I know that? Because of Jesus' final words in Luke 20. It was now about the sixth hour. A darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus said his final words. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head. He died. And even though it looked like all was done and there was no hope, Jesus knew the Father had received Into your hands, I commend my spirit and breathe this lens. At the end of that day, they took his body, his followers, hastily prepared it and laid it in the tomb, borrowed it. And at that moment, everyone could agree. That finishes that. Until it did. That's not the end of the story, is it? We know. Jesus experienced the shining light of resurrection. At this point... (coughs) I do ask you to stand in honor of the resurrection of our Lord. As the scripture is read. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. 
So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Dr. Young, my major professor during my my ordeal of working on a PhD, used to say that when the women came to the tomb that day, that morning, they were not carrying Easter lilies, singing low in the gray he lay. <laughs> they came knowing he was dead. They came because all of the burial rites weren't taken care of. They had to bury him so quickly on Friday. They wanted to make sure he was properly buried. And they get there. And to their surprise and shock, there's no body. And someone they supposed to be a gardener said, why are you looking for him? He's not here. Remember what he told you. So the very first witnesses of the resurrection were some very brave ladies. They came to that tomb and they weren't afraid to be condemned. They came to that tomb not caring what others would think, not worrying that they might be thought of as, "Uh uh-oh, there are some of those we've got to get next. They wanted to honor their master. They wanted to do one last act of service and love for them. But what they got is still cherished today. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. At that moment, for these ladies, darkness was driven away by an incredibly amazing blazing light. And all of this that we have looked at, from his march to Jerusalem to that first moment when he faced his shadow and people he loved failed him, as he went through the evening, person after person denied, deserted, betrayed, as he stood before a court that already predetermined his outcome, not realizing that God had determined his outcome before the foundations of the world. They had no idea, these false judges, that God was using them to accomplish his purpose. To the trial under Pilate, to being beaten within an inch of his life by the guards, to hanging on a Roman cross, being buried in a borrowed tomb, all of that came to this moment when death could not hold him. And it was all done for one very simple reason, that we might have life. That 
we might call God our Father. It was all done to pay a ransom, to save people. We cannot fully embrace the wonder of Easter if we don't remember what price it came at. The very Son of God came down to earth to live among us as a man. Scholars say he lived about 33 years of a perfect life, tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. And then he died, the perfect sacrifice. He followed his Father's will perfectly. Even though he had that moment of struggle and temptation in the garden, isn't there some other way? His whole heart cried out throughout his life, your will is what must be done. And he faced a darkness that you and I will never fully be able to comprehend. A man, a Savior, who broke through the darkness into glorious light. He lives, and he will never die again. And he lives so that you and I might live eternally with him. He is alive. He is alive. And he is our hope. He is our hope.